I wasn't drinking vodka with my cornflakes. I just, you know, didn't want to wake up feeling like groggy or take chances driving my car home when I shouldn't have been driving at home or say things that I didn't entirely mean to people that I care about anymore, which is very easy to do. That's my choice. I wasn't a, a kind of like a urine-soaked tramp, like living under a bridge. I mean, you know, but I mean, just because I don't want to have that glass, just because I don't want to share three bottles of Chardonnay with you now, you know, it doesn't make me a, a pariah. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Now, today's interview is with Ashley, who came along to a workshop back in August 2018, and she's recently celebrated her second soberversary. Well done, Ashley. I'm so proud of you. Now, this is quite a long conversation because Ashley made so many interesting points and we had such fun chatting that I couldn't quite bring myself to edit much out. So let's get straight into the conversation without further ado. Okay, well, um, my name is Ashley and I live in Cape Town in uh, City Bowl, luckily now, beautiful place. Um, I'm 40 years old. I'm currently in a relationship with a really amazing person. I, I'm a, I work in the arts. I own a, an art gallery, contemporary art gallery. So yeah, we work with artists from uh, Africa and, and Southern Africa primarily and, and work with a number of kind of international museums. Awesome. Uh, so let's go back a bit, Ashley. When, when did you first start thinking that maybe you were drinking a bit too much and you wanted to, to change what was going on? I started experimenting with alcohol when I was very young. So actually, I probably should have been thinking about cutting down on my drinking when I was about 15, but uh, <laughs> um, following my first expulsion from school for drunk and disorderly behavior. But that was kind of a, yeah, that was just a, a blip, a precursor. It didn't really carry on strongly from there. But I think, I guess, I think for quite a long time, uh, probably pro probably from my kind of early 30s, I would have been thinking um, about kind of starting to like moderate my behavior. I mean, you come out of your 20s and clubbing and partying and cocktails and work events and everything and and then I guess that that kind of drinking, I mean, the the glass after work and all of that stuff, or, or going out, or it just becomes this kind of habitual thing. So I I think that there were signs, you know, that I probably should have begun to realize that there that that alcohol was taking a bit of a too much of a center stage in my life. But of course, 
it's very easy for that to become justified because it's always a, you know, it's, it's very normal to be drinking at a wedding or a birthday or at a funeral or at a work function or at a baby shower. Maybe I shouldn't have had too much, so much to drink at that party or, you know, maybe I was a bit over the limit when I drove home that night or, damn it, I left my phone in an Uber again or, you know, all of those little signs are all things, you know, that would have, you would have thought. Yeah, so and unfortunately it took me a few years to actually get, do something about it. Did you actually try to, did you do dry Januaries and? You know, I always used to think, I mean, you read those those things about, oh, you're only supposed to have whatever you, it is that you're supposed to have, you know, like seven units of alcohol in a week. And like, yeah, yeah, you could have heard me like snorting in hysterics and rolling down the aisles. Because I mean, basically that was me, you know, that was like one dinner, out, which I know I wasn't, definitely wasn't alone in that. I mean, you go to a restaurant and they give you a, three glasses equivalent of what you're thinking is one glass of like real alcohol or whatever. But I did, yeah, I did once or twice. I did, I think I did it once. I don't know what it was. I think it was just sober October or one of these things. But I mean, really it was like knuckle. It was like white knuckling through the month and everyone you're doing with it, doing it with, you know, cause you obviously do it in a gang for mutual support is thinking, Oh my God, guys, I can't wait till we get to the end of this month so we can just go out and get smashed. And everyone's like, yes. <laughs> um, so it kind of defeats the purpose, but then you do those things and you think, ah, okay, well I can, go you know I can I can do that but I mean you you often you would find yourself thinking okay you know after a particularly heavy night or whatever or having gone out for dinner with friends and had you know two bottles of wine instead of one or three bottles instead of two uh you know between you the next morning you thinking to yourself oh god you know I can't believe I did that I can't believe we did that that was so silly you know we should have we should have stopped a little bit earlier and but at the time it always seems like a really great idea but and then you then comes the kind of oh I'm gonna you know I'll only drink on Wednesday I'll only drink on like Mondays and Wednesdays or I'm only gonna drink on the weekends or I'm only gonna drink when I go out for, with friends socially for dinner. The the fact that you're kind of giving yourself these ridiculous limitations or you're you you're sort of self policing. I mean when when you're at that stage, I kind of think you know, that's when it should actually become apparent that if it's, if you're spending this much mental energy on trying to like calibrate your behavior, then, you know, then it's, then it's an issue, but it's, but it, but it is, it's a very like sneaky thing because it's such a, it's a slippery fish. Yeah. And I mean, generally by the, by to make these promises to myself on, on Wednesday morning and whatever day it was, and then by kind of Wednesday, five o'clock, you know, it's like, oh, well, really, you know, been a long day glass of wine would be nice with making supper so it's it became it's it becomes a very it becomes a very difficult thing to um to maintain I mean because it is especially for me as well in my work you know there's a lot of openings a lot of social events a lot of work very easy to finish work at five o'clock and have to go to some some kind of uh exhibition opening and before you know it your promise of only drinking three nights a week or something is very quickly out the window. Well, we we do put all of those rules in place because we like to think that we're in trying to control it anyway, don't we? We like to think we're going to moderate. But in fact, you know, people that can moderate, they just moderate. The problem with drinking is that it becomes, you know, you might set yourself a rule, oh, I'll only have one glass of wine. Very easy to do. But then once you've had that first glass of wine, your 
ability to stick to your own rules is really much lessened. Yeah. Great, you know, yeah, setting rules I don't think is a is a workable option. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, and in fact, when you analyze it, it's not the fourth or fifth glass of wine that's the problem, it's the first, you know, because how many people can stop after one glass of wine? You know, with this new legislation that's just been introduced about having a zero amount of alcohol in your blood when you're driving, and, you know, a lot of people are in an uproar about it, but to be honest, I mean, I really think that you're not actually after having one drink you are really not in a good your 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 decision making capacity however slightly impaired is impaired and you're far more likely to think oh i'll just have one more drink or i'm sure only one beer or two beers so i mean i really think that that as you say it is that 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 first drink is the, is the issue yeah. because it does no matter how slightly you may think it affects your ability to you know stick to your goals or think clearly about something it does actually affect you definitely yeah yeah i mean they can they can tell that they can study your brain and, and see the changes and god place. forbid as a free south african citizen we should not be allowed to drink copious amounts of alcohol and get behind the wheels <laughs> of our cars i mean what an infringement on my democratic rights really <laughs> okay so tell me um how you heard about us and how you ended up pitching up at a workshop that's the first time we met, isn't it, I think? Yes, yes. I'm really so glad I came. Such a great thing. I mean, it's really, like, helped me change my life. Um, so I was actually just driving. T- I was in my car. I think I probably had a hangover. Was listening to Eusebius MacKay's uh, show. And I love Eusebius, and I'm so sad that he's no longer on Cape Yeah, we all Because um, I miss his analytical and robust discussions um but he's somebody who i really respected and and respect and i you on his show and i always had a lot of time for what he had to say um so when you came on i thought oh well this sounds cool um and hearing you speak on the radio about uh about the culture not only drinking specifically but about the culture of drinking that we have in south africa which is very problematic, actually. Um, you know, we're a we're a nation of extremely heavy drinkers, and I and you real you realize that when you travel, you know, you realize that South African people drink differently to other people. Um, so speaking about the culture of drinking and also how kind of ingrained it is in our everyday lives and how just you know we just accept it as the norm, and and how many people are probably kind of like secretly thinking to themselves, sheesh, you know, actually I've really got to cut back, which is what I was feeling. Yeah. And, and also hearing about it from a, a non, from like a kind of more rational perspective, which again, because I liked Eusebius's show, I, what I really liked about his show was, an, was his analytical perspective. And it wasn't uh, a discussion that was mired in the uh, emotional stigma almost that's attached to drinking or or all these things you always hear about you know if somebody if you want to stop drinking one it's like oh my god why do you want to stop drinking what's wrong with you and two um you know it normally is accompanied by some kind of like happy clappy like esoteric nonsense and it's just so off-putting and you think you're going to be surrounded by like people kind of 
I don't know, in chunky jerseys waving dream cap. I don't know what, but I was just like, this sounds like a rational, logical, straight down the line, uh, informative, problem-solving activity that I can do that's, that, that will present the information to me in a rational way and I can decide whether or not I want to use that information or not. So okay. that's, that's kind of why I came. No. And I liked your logo. And, and did we uh, live up to those expectations? Yeah, I thought so. I did. I did. I, I was surprised actually at, at, at first. I mean, it was a bit, I mean, it obviously was a bit nerve wracking. Um, again, I was reassured when I arrived at the podcast and you were wearing that very chic black and white striped jacket. And I was like, this is a woman I can listen to. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You know, art world bluesy. Um <laughs> I guess because you just you always have these terrible like ideas in your head of like what these things are going to be like, you know, there's kind of be like loads of people chain smoking around, I don't know, whatever in a car park. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it did. It was a, it was a good presentation of kind of rational stuff. And I think it, it really kind of brought it home for me to see, to look at something from one, a physiological perspective. So you know, what is, what is the substance? What is it made out of? And what does it do to your brain? How does it affect your body? Um, this is a, a biological response that you're having to a substance. It's not necessarily that you have a, a defective personality or that you are psychologically unhinged because you've, you know, because this thing affects you like this. It's, this is how it's supposed to affect you. It is an addictive, like mind-altering substance is doing what it's meant to do. So once you know how your body's reacting, you can maybe put systems in place to kind of counteract that. And so that was interesting. And then also I thought that the the research side of stuff was quite good, like the, you know, the the the, the reading material and things. I found that helped me a lot to be able to to research a problem because I guess that's how I also approach things in general. Um, and what, one thing that did surprise me actually was – that that also freaked me out a little bit at the beginning was I really this whole idea of like sitting in like a circle and like sharing your feelings I was just like get me out of here but um but actually what I realized and it wasn't really it wasn't it wasn't like that it but it, I mean there was that aspect to it but what I did realize was and it's the corniest thing but that people say over and over and over again but a problem shared is a problem halved Definitely. And I think that that is actually an essential thing because I think what had, held, what had kind of held me back from actually making this change a long time ago, which I should have done and it would have benefited me, was a fear of like sharing this perceived problem or this like shortcoming of mine. Um, and then actually doing that and realizing it's not actually that uncommon and it suddenly became like so much easier to deal with. Yeah, I think the connection part is pretty vital, just knowing that you're not the only one with this problem. Because if you're, I was coaching a lady yesterday and she said, oh, all my friends are drinkers. You know, I don't know how I'm going to cope. I haven't got a single person in my circle, you know, that doesn't drink. Yeah. So if you do come to something like that, at least, you know, in your address book, if you want them, you've got some sober buddies. You've always got someone you can talk to. And it makes you realize, you know, that as you say, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that some of us. I mean, 20% of the population will become addicted as the years go on, you know, will become dependent. 
when I was there, I, I actually, I was, I suddenly thought to myself, geez, I really wish I'd done this 10 years ago. Like, why did I not do this 10 years ago or five years ago or whatever, how many years ago? But, mm. um, but I also felt very grateful because there were quite a number of people there. I mean, there was a very big mixture of people and there were younger people as well and good for them. But I did look at some of the people that I could see were quite a lot older than me and, I was just thinking, I'm so ple- I am so glad I'm doing this now. I'm so glad I'm not doing this in 10 years. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. What did you kind of resolve at the end of the workshop? Were you going to try to go for 100 days or or forever? What were your plans? Do you remember? I was thinking, I think, wasn't it a, the first goal was 100 days, right? That was 100 days. Yeah, I think we suggested that probably. Yeah, so I think I was going to do that. I know you also said, said there in the workshop, you, was, you said, you know, you can, <clears throat> there were some people who, came and they were like, listen, you know, I'm not ready to quit drinking completely. Like this mm-hmm. isn't really for me. Like I really feel like I can still get a handle on this and I'm going to take what I've learned here and go away and sort of moderate my behavior. And I said to myself, there's no chance that's going to happen for me. Like I need to actually do this like full throttle. Otherwise I'm not going to, otherwise I'm back to square one. And why did I even come here in the first Yeah, Yeah. Well, good for you. <laughs> Um, and in fact, most of those people <laughs> have <back>. failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think 100 days was the first goal, and um, it was pretty tricky. I mean, I remember I had a really hardcore work schedule uh, after that meeting. I mean, not not terrible, but, again, like a, 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 a lot of cocktail events and things, things like that, um, and late nights and all of that but yeah it was it was okay I mean I think with the the kind of toolbox uh, the you know a lot of re- learning reading the literature taking a step back from a, a kind of analytical perspective and saying you know this is my body my body is a living organism I now understand that the thing that I've that been wondering why I've been feeling like sick and tired and got bags under my eyes and you know, all of these things. Oh, wow. You know, it's because I'm drinking like three glasses of poison a day. Oh, you know. So <laughs> um, I think having the, being equipped with that knowledge and then also reading about other people's experiences. And then, as you say, just changing simple, like simple habits, you know. I mean, my habit at the time was to like finish work, come home, open a bottle of wine and sit down at my desk for another three hours which I, which I stopped doing completely and the world didn't fall apart because I wasn't spending an extra three hours a day doing emails but what didn't fall apart was me I didn't fall apart you know because if I had carried on doing that I would have I mean maybe not in two years or three years but definitely in five years or seven years so I think yeah changing just just following the, the thing and changing some habits yeah breathing deeply so, so you reached your hundred days, and then you, did you just decide to continue? Yeah, I did. I, I did. It was working well, and I also didn't want to go back to 
square one again, you know, once you've done that. And also, you know, it's the same thing. It's sort of like when you've stopped, I did it when I used to smoke. And actually one of the reasons I was also desperate to quit smoking. And I realized I couldn't quit smoking unless I quit drinking, which was also one of the reasons I came to the work. I mean, it was a combined reason, but it was just the, 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 um, but it's that same thing of the smoker who quit smoking, which I've done a million times before. And then you, you're like, I don't, I'm over smoking. I don't need a cigarette. Jeez, I haven't even wanted a cigarette for like a month. Okay. Let me just have a drag and test myself. And I'm just going to, I can be fine. And then, then you're like back again, you know, you're back when you started. So I just thought yeah. rather, and I was saving a, a lot of money. <laughs> and how long have you been alcohol free now, Ashley? Well, I actually just looked it up before we got on this podcast because uh, I hadn't been keeping track. I realized that I came to the your workshop on the 27th of August, 2018. In those two years, I've had maybe two small hiccups, maybe like three or four glasses of wine in those two years. One after extremely trying missed flight at Heathrow, which I think is completely excusable. And, and then one other totally random thing. And, but since then, for about a year, no, nothing really. So how, how does one survive in the art world without alcohol? At first it was, it was a little bit difficult, but now I actually find that I, I relish it. I like it. I, I, I prefer it. I feel, I mean, it's, the times that it gets you really, I think is, is, you know, especially when you, you also start to realize that you use this thing as, and it's totally obvious that you use it as a kind of pick me up, you know, especially if you, you've been on your feet for like hours, you're talking to people all day, especially at these conferences that we do. Um, you know, you've been nonstop for like 10 hours and you still got another three to go. You know, you think, that's when you need that little like pick me up, I think sometimes. Um, and there is a reason that the organizers of these conferences start wheeling around carts at exactly that time, because they know everyone's a little bit flat in general. I feel like now it's actually a blessing. I feel like I enjoy my conversations with people much more, uh, much more present. The only thing that obviously does become tiresome is that, you know, you are not, after a certain point in the evening, you are really not on the same planet as everyone else. Um, so it does make it difficult to go to the after events events, you know, whereas before you would have been like running down the streets of London with your stilettos in your hand going, where's the next party? You, you now kind of <laughs> uh, thinking, um, okay, I'll see you all tomorrow. But that's actually fine. You know, as one of the artists I work with says, nothing good ever happens after 10 o'clock. The whole idea of like making million pound deals in the dark, moody corners of underground bars is a complete myth. Yeah. So in general, I think it's all a, all a big improvement. And have you found anything else to give you that pick me up, as you call it? I know exactly what you mean. When you get to that stage in the day, I mean, what what do you have now? Do you use alcohol-free drinks? or Over the last year and a half, I, I developed a bit of a bad sugar habit, which I've actually just kicked. I've just lost 10 kilograms. Well done. Um, but, I, at the, you know, when I first stopped, I was like, you know what? I'm having that hot chocolate. I don't care. I'm having it. And I'm going to have a biscuit on the side. Um, and... Uh, so I think I was doing, yeah, I was drinking, uh, I was probably drinking, I wasn't drinking alcohol-free drinks. I was drinking more like tonic waters and, 
but more, I'm more of a coffee and cake girl, I think. I think you're quite right to spoil yourself a little bit when you when you first give up because, you know, you can't win on all fronts. And even if you put on a few pounds, if you've ditched the drink, you know, eventually that will that will help you to lose weight. Well done on those 10 kgs. It shows, actually. Did people put pressure on you? What about – tell me about your partner. I've got a feeling he doesn't drink. He actually stopped as well. He stopped as well. I mean, he, yeah. he was never a heavy drinker at all. Um compared to like me and the gals. Um, he wasn't in your league. <laughs> no, he, but he did, you know, you have to have the kind of, you know, the, I think he actually probably ended up drinking a bit more because I drank more, but um, yeah, but n- not a heavy drinker by any stretch of the imagination, but he stopped completely to, to help me when I came home from work, he wasn't having a beer and I wouldn't feel like I wanted one or whatever, which I thought was very, very kind and sensitive. And I've felt very lucky because I, I think a lot of the people that I saw in your workshop, you know, one of their main issues that they seemed to bring up mm-hmm. was that they were in a relationship where their, their change in their behavior wouldn't be accepted and that it wouldn't be supported. And I mean, I couldn't even imagine how difficult it would be not only to change your own behavior, but to also fight that uphill battle with someone that you lived with. I mean, so I felt very fortunate there. And yeah, he's... Uh, decided actually you know this is pretty great I mean our family thinks it's quite strange to be honest I mean they're all kind of raising their eyebrows at us over the lunch table um like what's going on there I mean you get over it because it's just you know it's my life and I'm doing what I want to do but you know I want to roll my eyes when I get these kind of sideways glances you know like oh so you're not having a glass of wine oh you know what does that mean somebody's been a naughty girl and uh, I just think to myself, I wasn't drinking vodka with my cornflakes. I just, you know, didn't want to wake up feeling like groggy or take chances driving my car home when I shouldn't have been driving at home or say things that I didn't entirely mean to people that I care about anymore, which is very easy to do. That's my choice. I wasn't a, a kind of like a urine-soaked tramp, like living under a bridge. I mean, you know, but I mean, just because I don't want to have that glass, just because I don't want to share three bottles of Chardonnay with you now, you know, it doesn't make me a, a pariah. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. But I think the longer one goes on with this uh, journey, then the less interested people get. You know, they just kind of think, oh, well, <laughs> she's still doing her thing. Never mind. <laughs> she seems quite happy with it. And to be honest, I mean, you, do, you don't realize, but like most people, by the time they've had even one drink, they are actually quite, yeah, they're, they're quite different. So they don't really remember. They don't really notice much. Yes, but we do, don't we? The non-drinkers, we become very observant. <laughs> I know, you've got to kind of hold your tongue at times, you know. I, I never judge, but I do watch. <laughs> yeah, I can't judge. No judging here. No judging. I, no, I've no. We, we've been there, done that. Not to be judging anybody. 
So if you had to summarize in a few sentences, I know we've touched on it, but what, what benefits do you, would you say that alcohol-free life has brought you? I think at the time that I decided to stop drinking, I had really, I think I'd put a lot of strain on my personal relationship, my main, my primary personal relationship with my boyfriend, just, you know, him, as I said, not being a, a heavy drinker and myself being the opposite. Um so I think the biggest and most meaningful change there, and which was the one that I was most motivated to make, was to preserve that, to, to get that relationship on right footing again, um, which I think that, that's been, I think my personal relationships are better. Yeah, maybe a little bit more balanced in my, my work in a way, because I had to step, take my foot off the gas a little bit in order to remove that that stressor you know, to remove the trigger to to want to like calm my anxieties with alcohol, I needed to reduce some of those anxieties. Do you think uh, not drinking has reduced your anxiety a bit? Definitely, yeah. And also, I think you know what's quite interesting. What I found very soon afterwards is that people often th- say that they drink alcohol to give them confidence, and I did sometimes do that myself. You know, if I was at a whatever some kind of fancy or important dinner and I had to meet fancy and important people you know you maybe have a drink beforehand and you think okay well it'll help me to break the ice and actually at many of those functions the first thing they do is give you a drink when you walk in the door because that's exactly what they want to do is break the ice and make people more comfortable Mm -hmm. with each other but I definitely found that not drinking has given me a lot more confidence and 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 a much more um a calmer and a much more genuine confidence. Yeah, that's wonderful, Ashley. And it's a lovely kind of payback because we do lose the highs, don't we? We lose that buzz we used to chase all the time. But in return, I, I think you do get, as you say, calmness, confidence, and it's a, it's a different kind of joy, isn't it? It's so strange and because you think like all the things you used to do, you're like, okay, I'm anxious, so I'm going to drink, I'm 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 not feeling confident, so I might have a drink or I, you know, whatever it is. And then you realize actually, oh, I'm tired, so I'm going to pick myself up, you know, at like the 5 o'clock in the afternoon when I've got to work till 8.30 or whatever. But you actually realize all of the opposites are true. So, you know, alcohol makes you tired. It makes you anxious. It makes you nervous. So uh, we've we've touched on this a little bit about you know the pressure and the role of alcohol in society you know especially in this country it's so prevalent it's so normalized we're all what's that expression that I like alcohol is the only drug we have to justify not taking and we're considered a little bit odd if we don't drink what are your thoughts on that do you think it will change do you see any trends coming of younger people not drinking I think it is. I think it is changing. I mean, I, I don't think it's it's changing, but it's just so it's so desperately embedded into every single thing we do. It's like it's that when you're not doing it, you realize, wow. I mean, I went to a friend of mine's wedding, which I mean, weddings weddings are a, once you've crossed a wedding, an international flight an international delay in a really dodgy airport with another long international flight followed following directly after it. Um, you know, what, there are a number of kind of big things to pass through. But, I mean, I went to this wedding and I, you know, one of my best friends and everyone was having a great time. And 
and I, because I wasn't drinking, I mean, I was having like a fabulous time, you know, I was, uh, you know, on the dance floor, it was like my first time, you know, at a wedding, I was going to say, you know, can I do this? Can I have fun? And I did. And it was great. And I loved it. And we had uh, a, a lunch, you know, a few days later to find out, you know, just to catch up and because the, the person who was uh, getting married was going back overseas. And I just speaking to everyone else about their experience of the event just made me realize how damaging this thing is because I, half of the people who are supposed to be like really good friends of this person didn't remember most of the stuff that actually happened or, the, or what they, their experience of was completely different. Lots of them like left the wedding early so they could go off and like, I don't know, go to a bar or like, you know, they just, they weren't themselves really, you know, they wouldn't have, if they were themselves, they wouldn't have thought, oh, it'll be really fun for me to go to a club and take Coke right now on my best friends, you know, and these are like 38 year old people. I mean, they're like, they're not like teenagers. And I mean, I just, I mean, and then it was, you know, another event, like going to someone's baby shower and, you know, also the booze comes out and everything changes or, you know, even, like a funeral and you know the people decide to serve only tea as opposed to wine and like you know people don't stick around to, to console the family like they're kind of out of there or you have I just it just becomes so apparent how how insidious this thing is it's got its claws into everything yeah. there are so many people I know so many people that I would definitely say have an alcohol dependency problem definitely like the actually the majority of people I know and I think what stops people is, well, first of all, you know, they know there's an issue there, but they don't really know how to deal with it. And they don't want to go and sit with people in chunky jumpers or, or smoke in car parks. You know, they, they, they see those as the only kind of solutions. And the other thing that stops people, you mentioned it as well, is uh, they don't want people to think that they've got a problem with alcohol. Crazy that the stigma is, is there, isn't it? That's actually, Janet, sorry, to get back to your question, that's what bothers me actually the most. I mean, I really have a bee in my bonnet about this, is the fact that, like, spend your whole life, or not your whole life, but maybe from the age of 16, 17, 18, or whenever it is that you start drinking alcohol, you drink this stuff that people give you at every social occasion, at every birth, death, whatever it is. Then when you drink this, you take this addictive actually what is in a drug, you take an addictive drug at all of these different occasions on a day, almost, almost on a daily basis. Then when you become addicted to the drug that you've been so happily being spoon fed for years and years and years, everyone's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, actually, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, this is like a completely normal physiological reaction to an organic substance. And it's like, and I also think, I mean, people, but the problem is because actually on some level, I think almost everyone is actually a little bit addicted. Um, there's this, you know, no one really wants to let the cat out of the bag here. Yeah, just how pervasive the the, yeah. the problem is. And I mean, if I had a penny for how many times I've seen people who've been, you know, out of something the night before or behaved maybe in a way that definitely wasn't appropriate or whatever and everyone sort of you know skitters over the issue and goes oh you know you had a little bit too much to drink no you didn't have a little bit too much to drink you were absolutely blotto and I'm sure you felt like total rubbish this morning you know like 
the this whole you know the kind of niceties and euphemisms and cover-ups and cocktails for dinner wine with dinner aperitif after followed by port no that's just drinking multiple variations of alcohol over an extended period of time that's like cloaked in a in a, a veil of social etiquette that's another thing you say what do i what's been a great thing about giving up alcohol is that i really enjoy my food when i go out to a oh. restaurant now yeah yeah well i think um we should end on that that rather optimistic note that you uh yeah enjoy your food and you've lost 10 kgs i mean how fabulous yes, is that too. what a win what a win <laughs> So well done, Ashley. And thank you so much for your time. You're a star. Thank you, Janet. Thanks for everything. Thanks for um, yeah, changing my life and helping all the other people that you help, bringing an awareness to something that I think is actually a very, very common, very common problem that a lot of yeah. normal people are dealing with. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. It was such fun to catch up with you after quite a while. And I'm thrilled that you've already clocked up two years of sobriety and that you're relishing your alcohol-free life. Let's pull out some points from that conversation. Ashley recognised that there could be a problem when she found herself making lots of rules and then promptly breaking them. And I think that is so true. If you find yourself thinking... Now, I'm not going to drink in the week. I'm only going to drink at weekends. Of course, if you do that, then that's fine, as long as the weekends are reasonable and you're not drinking more than one and a half bottles of wine. But if you keep making rules and keep breaking them, then just recognise that you do have an issue and you need to make some changes. At the end of the workshop, Ashley knew that in spite of all her new information, it would be pointless committing to moderation. She had to go all in. She knew that she'd cross that invisible line that we cross and that there would be no going back, only going forwards. She felt confident as she was leaving the workshop. She had her toolkit, she had some new information, she had some new sober buddies. She knew she could do this. At the beginning of her journey, she decided to treat herself to all the sweet things that she wanted. She drank hot chocolate, she often had coffee and cake, and she decided she was just focusing on that one thing at a time, which I think is very sensible. We can't win on all fronts. But as time went on, she weaned herself off the sugar, off the sweet things, and now she's lost an amazing 10 kgs. She talked about the many benefits of sobriety and these days she is much less anxious and more confident. So it's been a huge win on on every front for Ashley. The workshop was really a turning point in her life. So at the age of 40, she's got a whole different future ahead. In fact, she fully recognised that if she hadn't taken this step, she could have found herself in a very difficult place in five years' time. As she said, it's a slippery slope, or indeed a slippery fish, as I think she called it. So if you'd like to come along to a workshop, then uh, you should know that they take place on Zoom these days, which means that we can welcome people from all over the world, which is fantastic. The way we structure it is that we do a four-hour group coaching session. 
So typically we'll have maybe six to eight people on the group coaching session. We take them through the workshop content. We get to know each other a little bit, put everybody on a group together, on a WhatsApp group. So we follow up your group coaching session with an individual coaching session. We go through your action plan and make sure that you're on the right track to succeed. Of course, there's further coaching sessions available if you want ongoing support. So thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. Don't forget to subscribe and share and see you next time. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.